chapter 3, sermon. All right, Esther, week 2, chapter 3, sermon title is the pride of Haman, the pride of Haman. Let's pray, and we're going to talk about pride and humility today. Lord Jesus, we just need your help this morning. We always do, and we uh, confess that together in this group, that none of us here stand independent. Uh, We all stand dependent upon you for our very next breath, our very next thought, our ability to think and reason and consider words that come out of my mouth, words that come out of your mouth from your word. Uh, we, we, We are dependent upon you for understanding. And apart from you, our minds are darkened, Romans chapter 1. But because of you, we can think rightly, and we can understand what you have to say. And Holy Spirit, just come and lead us this morning. Help us to, when we talk about your Bible, your word, help us to realize this is actually your very words here. Like we're not, this isn't fun and games, monkey business kind of stuff. We're here to hear from you this morning. And God, you're going to speak. And so help me to be faithful to what you have to say. That's what I need. I need to understand your words correctly. And that's what our people here this morning, what your people need to hear is they need to understand your words rightly as we look at this Haman. And God, we don't want to be like Haman. We don't want to be proud. And so many of us, our pride is so sneaky because it looks like passive aggressiveness or it looks like humility, but it's pride clothed in false humility. So just help us this morning. Help us to understand the lie of the enemy who comes and says, hey, pride is a virtue. Pride is a virtue. Pride is a virtue. Haman would agree. And God, you say pride cometh before a fall. And that you hate the proud heart. So help us this morning. We trust that you're going to. In Jesus' name, amen. Pride. What's the big deal about pride? A couple quotes from a couple brilliant thinkers, C.S. Lewis and Charles Spurgeon. Let's hear a couple of these, and then we'll get into the book of Proverbs, and then we'll get into verse 1 in Esther chapter 3. Here's what C.S. Lewis says about pride. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes, when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people, except Christians, that is, ever imagine that they are guilty of it themselves. There is no fault which which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. The vice I am talking about is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. End quote. Here's another one. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the beginning of the world. And the last C.S. Lewis quote this morning, well, they'll get to one more later. Pride always means enmity. It is enmity. And not only enmity between man and man, but enmity between God and man. Well, here's a couple select quotes from Charles Spurgeon. He has some things to say about pride as well. Oh, believer, learn to reject pride seeing that you have no ground for it. Whatever you are, you have nothing in you to make you proud. The more you have, the more you are in debt to God. And you should not be proud of that which renders you a debtor. And the last one. Let us measure ourselves by our master and not by our fellow servants. Then pride will be impossible. Let us measure ourselves, God, Proverbs chapter 8, verse by our fellow servants. Then pride will be impossible. And then here's the very word of God, Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13. It says this, 
To fear the Lord is to hate evil. And then here's what God says. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. Proverbs 11.2 When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 16.5 Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. So today we're going to see the kind of life rot that can happen from pride. What happens when pride takes root? What's the end of pride? What can it do in the heart of a man or a woman, a boy or a girl? What's the end of pride if we don't get this thing in check? And so often it's hidden because false humility abounds. Humility, it looks like humility, but it's false. It's, it's the person who wants to be recognized for their humility. Wants honor for being so humble. It's false humility. Look at chapter 3 of the book of Esther. We'll go ahead and just read verse 1 down through verse 6. After these things, King Assyrius promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamedetha, and advanced him and set his throne above the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were with them at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were with him at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Well, we see in verse 1 that there's an unexpected promotion. Now this promotion, natural, just the natural reading of the text from chapter 2 to chapter 3, the promotion would seem like it should go to Mordecai because chapter 2 ends this way. And this came to the knowledge, this plot to kill King Assyrius, came to the knowledge of King Assyrius through Esther by way of Mordecai. So Mordecai hears of a plot to kill the King Assyrius, and then Esther tells the king, hey, Mordecai, my cousin, told me about this plot. And it ends, chapter 2 ends this way, and this knowledge came to Mordecai, he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai, and when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it recorded in the book of Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now here's how chapter 3, it sounds like it should start. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Mordecai the Jew. Doesn't that seem like a natural reading? Because after all, Mordecai saved the day, let the plot be known. But here we, we find out that Haman, the Agagite, was promoted. Now who in the world is Haman and what in the world is an Agagite? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because naturally, we would think this, but here's what we find out about an Agagite. Agag was the king of the Amalekites in the Old Testament, the king of the Amalekites. The Amalekites were bitter enemies of God's people Israel. And God told King Saul that he was going to judge the Amalekites. 
And he was going to destroy him. The way that judgment, because after all, the wages of sin is death. And the Amalekites were an evil, wicked people. And so God laid his judgment upon them, just like in the New Testament. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. The wages of sin is death. Or if that's, that might be the wrong verse. Romans 3 somewhere. Wages of sin is death. Just like in the Old Testament, the wages of sin is death. And so God's judgment was coming upon the Malachites through the Israelites. And God told King Saul, kill them. Wipe them out. My judgment has come upon the Amalekites. Well, King Saul killed them all except the king of the Amalekites, King Agag. King Agag lived and he was brought back with God's people. They plundered the city and brought back Agag. Agag ended up having children. And then there ended up becoming Agagites. And here is Haman. Grandson, great-grandson, great-great-great-great-great-grandson of King Agag. And instead of Mordecai the Jew getting the promotion, God's enemy, the lineage of enemies from the Amalekites forward, this Agagite is now promoted. Saul ended up losing his position. God brought judgment to Saul for not killing King Agag. And the Agagites here are becoming a thorn in the flesh of Israel, and because of past disobedience, here is this opportunity for an Agagite to get rid of all of God's people. Again, will God do something about it? Will He act? Will He respond? Here is the Agagite. So the king's command, the king's command came down. Haman is, in fact, installed as a leader, advanced to a throne above all the officials who were with him. And the king then gave a command to pay homage to Haman wherever Haman went. Now, the king was not commanding the people to worship Haman. That's an important distinction. They were not commanded to worship Haman as God or as a God. They were commanded to pay homage to Haman as a person of authority in this land, in Susa. King Assyria. Ahasuerus, I keep getting that name mixed up, King Ahasuerus made this command and told everybody, honor and pay homage to Haman. Not worship Haman, but honor the position. Everyone bowed to Haman in honor, except this one man, Mordecai. Mordecai wouldn't bow the knee. Here in a second, we're going to explore these motives. But it's not a clear-cut answer as to the motive of why Mordecai did this. I wish I could say unequivocally that he loved God and he was passionate about God. And he made his stand. I will not bow a knee to another. But I think there's something else going on here. And that's a possibility. He does mention the fact that he is a Jew. But there's something going on in Haman and Mordecai's relationship here. There's something happening. There's something happening in Mordecai. I wish I could say that Mordecai just didn't, he just, he didn't bow the knee because he just was a God-fearing man. But I, I just don't think it's that clear. Well, shock and awe happens. The people began to go around and the officials uh, were saying, Mordecai, you should be bowing. Why are you not bowing? Did you not hear the king's command? This is the king's very command that you're going against. Why are you not bowing to Haman? And then Mordecai makes reference because it was the fact that he was a Jew. They were shocked. Why on earth would Mordecai not bow? Well, we see this in verse 4. He says, for he had told them that he was a Jew. But like I said, I think there's a little bit more to the story. 
The reason I think there's a little bit more to the story is the fact that Haman is not worshipped here. Nobody is worshipping Haman. King Assyrius would not have instilled somebody else in his kingdom to be worshipped. That's, that's not what would have happened. And other Jews in that area had no problem bowing down to Haman. They were Jews throughout Susa. So I think something is happening inside of Mordecai. I could be wrong on this, but my, as I'm looking at this, I think something is happening inside of Mordecai, that there is remnants of jealousy within Mordecai as well, thinking possibly that position should be mine. I will not bow to a man whose position should be mine. Either way, whatever Mordecai's motives were, here's one thing that we're absolutely certain on. What is going in, on inside of Haman? We know what's going on inside of Haman. Even though, okay, so one of these two things could be a reality about Mordecai, Haman's intentions are absolutely clear, 100% clear. And we see that in verse 5. Look at verse 5. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. Let me just ask you, a little bit of fury or a lot of fury? Filled up. Filled up. So this isn't just a, you know, a, a minor agitation here. Uh, he couldn't tolerate not being respected. He had to have universal homage paid to him. Continuing on. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as he had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai throughout the entire kingdom of Ahasuerus. So if Haman was to lay hands on Mordecai in his mind, in his heart, that wasn't going to be enough. I had to see, see Mordecai as a representative of an entire group of people, and I have to get rid of that entire group of people. My fury will not be done away with until I kill them all. He wants them all gone. The Jewish people in the minds of Haman aren't a people. They're not individuals. They're just a people all like Mordecai. And he couldn't tolerate it. He had to be respected. He had to be. Haman's pride sought to hurt other people. That's what pride always does. And here, here's the deal. Haman was disrespected by Mordecai, and he's the type of man, revealed to be the type of man, that, that can't handle being disrespected. This is what pride does inside of us. Anytime there's something in our life that doesn't go our way or that feels disrespectful to us, here's what ends up happening. Pride rises up. I don't deserve that, or I deserve better. Why is that happening to me? Well, this is what's happening in the life of Haman. Rage, fury. I don't want to be like Haman. And I don't want you to be like Haman. I want us to be spared from that. Haman viewed Mordecai as this great representative of all the Jews. He, in other words, believed in intersectionality politics and identity politics and crazy stuff, which seeks to strip identity away from people. It's the most political I'll ever get. But here is Haman. He didn't say people. He saw Jews. And he wanted to get rid of them. He saw the group. Haman's pride, he didn't know what to do with it. The only way he thought he could get rid of this fury and this anger was to bring revenge and to bring and get blood. That's what he wanted, blood. 
And not just Mordecai's, but all of God's people. So we see that Haman begins to sit on this fury and sit on this rage. He's not a guy that flies off the handlebars at first, so he internalizes this. And so all this fury is building up inside of him, and he begins to calculate, cal- he begins to calculate and to think, how can I get back at Mordecai and all of the Jews? And so he just sits on this, internalizes it, and waits for his opportunity. He doesn't at first pick up a knife or a sling and go get Mordecai. He begins to plan. And you see, you see Haman's cunning inside of him. And maybe some of you can relate. That self-justifying attitude that begins to rise up in us when we feel like we've been wrong and we begin to build our case. And we don't build it right away, but we build a catalog of reasons of why we are right or why somebody else is wrong. And at the right time, the calculated time, when my wife or when your husband agitates you just enough, that book comes out. And all those reasons begin to explode. And you've just been sitting on it. You've just been waiting. Here is Haman with pride and rage to a greater degree than that. And it's bubbling up inside of him. He's sitting and we see his cunning ability here in verse 7. Look at verse 7 down through 11. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it in month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws, well, they're different than those of the other people, and they don't keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king to profit or tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's businesses, business that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Haman Edetha, the king or the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also. Do to them as it seems good to you. So Haman waits patiently. He does not immediately retaliate. In verse 7, we find out that there has been five years from when Esther was promoted as, as queen and then this happening right now. Five years. So most likely there's been a gap here where Haman's been sitting on this maybe even up to four or five years. And he's just waiting And waiting, and at just the right time, hey king, it is not to your profit that these Jews be kept alive. If you keep them alive, they don't obey your law, they worship another god, you're going to run into some trouble. You need to get rid of these Jews. He saw his opportunity, in passing says this to the king, and it's almost like the king didn't even think of it. All right, 10,000 talents of silver, sounds good takes the signet ring, puts it down. The king's edict is there. And then he says to them in verse 11, do with them as it seems good to you. This is what Haman wants. (laughs) He's been waiting. Yes. I've been waiting for years. That Mordecai, he has no idea what's coming to him. If he won't pay homage to me, I'll see what I, he'll see my power. And he'll see what I'll do to him and his people. They're gone. So what seems good to Haman? 
What does Haman want to do? Has his anger subsided? Is he now a peaceful man? Or has that rage just bubbled up inside of him and gotten worse and worse? Look at verse 12. The king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month in an edict according to all that Haman commanded. You see that? Haman now has control over the commands. All that Haman commanded was written in the king's satraps and to the governors over the provinces, to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in his own script, and to every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, to plunder their goods. Now, let me just ask you this. If you're in Jerusalem, because remember at this time, if you missed last week, we're at in a timeline of history of Israel here, is that this is after God's people were in captivity in Babylon, And then some of God's people were brought back out of exile and they rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem and then re-inhabited the walls of Jerusalem. So this is Nehemiah and Ezra, the story that we find in Nehemiah and Ezra where God's people were brought out of Babylon. But then after that, a few years later, the Persians overthrew the Babylonians and the Persians had, had power throughout all the land and the Babylonians didn't have power anymore. The king lived in the capital city of Susa. So Susa is where all this is taking place, and this edict begins to go out. And as it's going out to all these provinces that the Jews are all going to be killed on one day, a letter sent by a marcher or sender of a a courier arrives at Jerusalem. And somebody in Jerusalem, whoever's reigning at that time, or a prophet, or whoever at that time, opens this, and they find out that an edict has come down from the Persians that we're toast. We're done. All in one day. Over the whole land. So not just those Jews that are in the capital city of Susa. The Jews that are in all of the region of the Persian Empire. And this is the edict. This is what Haman wants. He wants the blood, not just of Mordecai, but the blood of everyone else. This is what pride does. It's never enough. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. Is there for a reason because vengeance is not yours. You can't get, get enough of it. But this pride is just continuing to eat away and eat away and eat away. And so what seemed good to Haman is to annihilate all the people of Mordecai. Young, old, men, women, children. In all of the provinces, the king sent the decree through the words of Haman. The decree goes out. The king and Haman then, look at this. This is maybe the most sickening passage in all of the chapter. Look at this. A copy of the document was issued. This is verse 14. And decreed in every province and the proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went hurriedly by the order of the king. And the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman, listen to this, sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. In his mind, his anger to begin to subside, Haman had the audacity to sit down and drink with the king as if it's just another day. After ordering the slaughtering of tens of thousands of people, and you see no conscious level guilt, you see no difficulty in him at all, just be gone, all of them, all in one day. I'm tired of them. 
Blood would have filled the streets, cries and screams and agony through all the Persian Empire. And he sits down with a drink, with a king. Pride. Haman's pride, it leads us to consider a biblical theme of pride and humility. It's a story within the story of the book of Esther, and it's a story within the story of the book of the Bible. And you have these two paradox, or these two parallels here, or these two opposites, pride and humility. And this is a story not just of the book of Esther, but it's a story of all the book of the Bible. You see these parallels of, of, of biblical narrative from Genesis to Revelation about pride and humility. And God cutting those down who are proud and elevating the humble. What's this deal about pride and humility? What will pride ultimately do? Well, we see it in the life of Haman, but I think as we reflect about our lives, even as people who are spirit-filled people, we still struggle with this thing called pride. It may not be to the level of Haman, but if God was to withdraw his spirit, and if you're in Christ, he would never do that. But if you're not a believer and he would withdraw his common grace, this is where pride could go. Pride is the sin, in fact, underneath all sin. There is pride. Why are you angry? Why are you offended all the time? For those who are offended all the time, it's everybody else isn't the problem. The problem is a proud heart within you. Humble people are hard to offend. Proud people are so offended by proud people. A proud person can sniff out a proud person quicker than, I don't know, things can sniff out things. <laughs> Pride got Satan and demons cast out of heaven. I want to be like God. I can be like God. Pride, wanting to be like God, got Adam and Eve kicked out of Eden. Pride and self-worship. Go hand in hand. And if you don't know, self-worship is the God of this age. Self. The more noble the thing, the more noble it is, the more seductive a false gospel it is. And friends, men and women are created in the image of God and we are noble beings as far as what our dignity and value and worth compared to everything else. But here's the seductive nature about the image of God in us. We are prone to worship ourselves rather than worship God. And that's why self-everything is out in our world today, because that's the God of this age, the self. Pride is a God, God complex wrapped in human flesh. I want to be like God. I am God. I want worship. I want praise. You ever wonder why it's so hard to receive encouragement from a brother or sister without thinking about it all day long? Somebody encourages you? Or you did something good and somebody recognized it and honored it and you just think about that? I hope I'm not the only one who, who struggles with receiving encouragement in the right way because I struggle because I'll start thinking much of myself. You know, I tell you what, it was a pretty good sermon. You know, that was really kind of me. Pride lives for the praise of people. Pride thrives on the praise of people. It's never enough. You get some of it and you want more of it. Drug addiction has nothing on like pride addiction or 
worship addiction. Pride receives compliments and turns the compliments, internalizes it as worship and just says, give me more. Give me more. Give me more. Give me more. Pride is what drives, as I said before, the God of this age, the self-worth, self-help industry, the you're somebody, you're amazing industry. The reason people are so angry, the reason we deal with fits of anger, it usually happens when we don't feel like we're honored the way we think we should be honored, and I get angry about it. I don't get recognized the way I feel like I should get recognized. Pride often, as I said at the beginning of this sermon, hides itself with external humility. So this external facade of humility, and yet inside it's raging. It's like the proud heart has a way of becoming humble externally, so we'll receive praise for being humble. That's why humble brags are all over the place. A humble brag is the pastor, the church leader, somebody around you who brags about being like, God, will you just, uh, okay, I, I put on the internet, I just evangelized to three people and shared the gospel with them. Will you please pray for them? Translation, I want you to know that I was sharing the gospel with somebody more than I want them to be prayed for. Please recognize, yeah, if you pray for them, that's great, but please know that I just shared the gospel with three people. Pride is sneaky. C.S. Lewis says, a man is never so proud as when he is striking an attitude of humility. But what is humility? Because humility, we begin to think about humility and we think wrong definitions about humility all the time. Because so often humility is clothed because we don't like it or want it. And by God's grace, it is possible for us. And we'll talk about that here in a minute. But humility so often we, we tie to self-loathing. Oh, well, I, I can't, humility, I, I'm not just, uh, I'm not, I, I'm just a terrible person. And I'm, I'm failing all the time and I'm just a horrible person. Look how humble I am. That's, that's not humility. So often we think humility is weakness or having low self-esteem or low self-worth or low self-value. That's not humility. That's not humility at all. Humility is not consumed with those things. Humility is think is not thinking less of yourself. Again, this is C.S. Lewis. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Oh, with the shoulders slouched disappointed in how terrible of a human being that you are, always walking around moping and thinking that everybody else has got life together but little old me. You know, Eeyore. Humility isn't Eeyore. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but let's begin to think about what it is. But thinking of yourself less. And that's what this world, apart from the Holy Spirit, cannot do. Think of ourself less. And that's what you can't do apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. Think of yourself less. Humility looks like understanding the value of Jesus. Notice when I begin to tie these things to Jesus and not to the self, I'm not talking about thinking of ourselves less, I'm thinking about Jesus more. And therefore, consequently, thinking about ourselves less, not thinking about our, less of ourselves. There's an important distinction. Humility is understanding the value of Jesus. Humility is what happens inside of, of those 
who are being trained by the grace of God. That's what humility begins to, to be. It manifests itself in us, in those who are being trained by the cross of Christ and the grace of God. Humility is knowing Christ's worth. Humility replaces consumption with self with consumption of Christ. Okay. How do we, when we think about the cross, if the cross is where pride goes to die, how do, what, do, what does that look like? Pride, humility. Notice when we think about humility, understanding the value of Jesus. I'm not talking about understanding the value of myself. This world is consumed. You just have to know how valuable and precious you are. I mean, goodness. The, the Non-Christians say this. The world says this. You have to know how amazing you are. No, you don't. You really don't. You need to know how amazing Jesus is. There's a big difference there. Even if it's wrapped in Christianese and Christian language, you don't need to know how valuable you are. You are incredibly valuable. You need to know how precious Jesus is. And that doesn't sound like it's going to be any help to you. But that's the lie of the enemy. And that's the lie of the flesh. The flesh wants to say, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. I've got to value myself. And the world's going to say, no, no, no. You're amazing. You're precious. You're glorious. You're awesome. No, those things are what Jesus is. And if you'll grow into that, if you'll see Jesus for who he is, you realize, I'm not thinking about myself as much. And I'm also not thinking less about myself. I'm not, self, I'm not Eeyore anymore. How could I be Eeyore when Jesus is right here? How do we grow in humility then? How do we avoid becoming Haman? Well, the cross of Christ, I'll say it again, is where our pride goes to die. But here's what happens in our world today, and even in Christian circles. We have a way of turning the cross and making it selfish. We have a way of taking our pride to the cross, not to die, but to be patted on the back. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, the cross tells us that it's not about you. But here's what pride says about the cross. A proud person, and even in Christian circles, this will happen. The cross is about you. And if you struggle with your value, and if you struggle to find your value, look at the cross, and you'll see how valuable and amazing you are. You'll see how much you're worth. You'll see your dignity there. You'll see your value there. And a pride, self-centered view of the cross looks to the cross, and it doesn't say anything about Jesus. It says everything about you. Look how awesome you are. Look how valuable and amazing and beautiful you are that Jesus would do this for you. And it sounds right. It sounds good. Yes, that's where we get our value. It shows me how awesome I am. I matter. The cross. It sounds right. Friends, it's dead wrong. And even if I, as I say that, there's so many of us, it's like, what? I've been told that my whole life. I've been told that my whole life. Because pride looks at the cross, and then it, inside of us it says, Wow, look how awesome and valuable and amazing that I am that Jesus would do this for me. And it's like we're crying out. This, 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 Haman would agree with this. I am awesome. 
But here's what the cross says. Oh no, look how horrible, look how horrible and vile my life and my sin is. That my life would earn such a horrific judgment. As I look at the cross, I see my life weighing the balance. As I look at the cross, I see that, my gosh, my sin caused that? My life caused that? And it sounds like that that's a path to self-loathing, but it isn't. It sounds like that view of the cross is a way to look at ourselves and then just turn into Eeyore. But look how horrible. Look to the cross and not see how valuable and amazing you are. Look to the cross and see how vile. And look at, see what your life has warranted from God. Horrific judgment. Humility looks at the cross and weeps and says, My sin put him there. My sin. It's my life. I have fallen short. But then recognizes how valuable and how amazing and how glorious and how worthy Jesus is that He would do this for me. He would do this for me who earned that. How valuable He must be. How glorious He must be. How worthy He must be. And the self-centered gospel looks to the cross and says, no, how valuable you must be. And how wonderful you must be. And how glorious you must be. But the true, pure gospel says, Jesus is precious and He loves you who don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. But He loves you. And if we can get off our self-righteous high horse long enough, our proud high horse that just wants to tell everybody, you're amazing, you're valuable, you're awesome, and strip them of the biblical dignity that says you've sinned against God, and your life caused the very cross of Christ, and it's ugly, and it's horrific, and you're in trouble if you don't repent. And we live in a culture that doesn't like that because it offends people. You don't want to hurt people's feelings. and You don't want people to turn into Eeyore. Friends, this is the anecdote to an Eeyore life. If you'll get how precious Jesus is and how glorious He is and get our eyes off ourselves, we won't think less of ourselves. We will think of ourselves less. We'll be free. Pride looks at the cross and says, wow, I must be awesome. Humility looks at the cross, often with tears in their eyes, and says, wow, Jesus is awesome that he would do that for me. Haman, in this story, gives us an opportunity to consider such things. There's pride in all of us that needs to die. Marital conflict, struggle at work, anger in your heart. Most likely, it's due to hidden pride. What now? 
Beloved brothers and sisters, because of what Jesus did for you, you are forgiven of your pride right now. Right now. This isn't a condemnation sermon condemning you for your pride and my pride. Pride is a sin against God and it's a sin Jesus forgave. He lived the perfectly humble life, not proud in any of the wrong ways. He was not sinful. And because if you're in Christ, if you're in Christ, your sins have been forgiven and you've been counted righteous. So right now you are counted, even though you know you struggle with pride, you are counted in the eyes of God as a man or woman who is perfectly humble. Perfectly. This whole gospel thing applies to this as well. You're counted as humble. And yet, just like any other aspect of life, we are counted righteous, but we know there are pockets and nooks and crannies in our heart, in our life, that are not yet sanctified. And even though we're counted righteous, this whole actual righteous thing, we're just stumbling through life and struggling with sin and in conflict and all of this stuff. And struggle internally still. So, uh, what, what do we do? Well, first, there's no condemnation. There's no condemnation whatsoever for you because what Christ has done for you. Pride is the same way. You are completely forgiven right now of your pride and you're completely counted as a humble man or woman. Therefore, leave your life of sin. You don't have to be proud anymore. You haven't earned anything from God and you can't earn any from anything from God. What are you proud of? Like, everything you've received in your life is because of God's grace, not because of your earning. What are you to be proud of? And if we'll get that, the songs that we sing, if we'll get this Jesus, the cross of Christ right, there is freedom for the proud. We can, by the grace of God, move forward. We don't have to be proud men and women. We don't have to be little Hamans walking around the rest of our life. We can actually surrender. We can say, I'm a proud man. And I don't want to be anymore because of what Jesus has done for me. I can't do this anymore. God, make me humble. And then over time, by God's grace, we become more humble. And you know what? This is weird. The evidence of growing more in humility... This is so unique. Uh, other people recognize it, but you still think you're proud. Other people will recognize growth and humility, but you'll still be fully convinced, I'm proud. So this is a battle. The rest of our life, we're going to need to hear that there's no condemnation for the proud. But for the rest of our lives, we need to go back to the cross and see the value of Jesus. See how much he's worth. And by God's grace, get some freedom. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just ask that you would lead us, you would guide us, help us as we sing to you. Um, we need your help. Haman is just such an interesting case study. And as we look at the judgment that came down upon the Jews, and as we look forward to seeing your redemption, your salvation, this great reversal of decree, from a decree of judgment and condemnation of the Jews to <laughs> victory over the enemy, that we see in the book of Esther. God, we claim that even right now for us, that we were condemned to death and eternal torment. And you, you, Jesus, came for us and saved us and died in our place for our sins, the wrath of God upon you in our place. And Jesus, you are so precious and wonderful and glorious. And God, help us this morning. Holy Spirit, lead us in any way that you see fit. And I thank you that just like in the book of Esther, the enemy ends up being defeated. Jesus, you came and defeated Satan, demons, death itself, and then gave us, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the power and ability to overcome sin. We don't have to be struggling with this the rest of our lives in the exact same way as we are right now. We can get measures of freedom, so I ask that you would bring that right now. Holy Spirit, lead us. I trust that you will. It's in Jesus' name I pray.
Amen. If you want to pray, you can certainly do that. If you would like me to pray with you, come to the front. I'll pray with you. I want to encourage you to listen to the words of these songs as you sing. And let's just worship the Lord together. Let's sing. Hmm.